From American Public Media, this is King's Last March. I'm Stephen Smith. And I'm Kate Ellis. The moment he died, it was easy to create another king. He became kind of a symbol for not the unfinished business of the movement, but for the success of the movement. And so America could look at King as this symbol for, well, we once had this race problem, but Martin Luther King helped solve it. That is Claiborne Carson, director of the King Papers Project at Stanford University. We caught up with him there a few weeks ago. We talked to Carson more than a decade ago when we were first putting together this program about King's last year. Carson was the person to call because in 1985, Coretta Scott King herself picked him to be the editor of her husband's life work. Carson says he was skeptical at first, but now he has spent the better part of his life as the scholastic bearer of King's legacy. When we were making this podcast, we wanted to know, in the 10 years since we last worked with him, has his understanding of King's legacy changed? Well, I've come to think of his life as he was kind of an accidental civil rights leader in the sense that he started out as a social gospel minister. And I think most people have very little understanding of what that means, but what it meant to him was that the job of the Christian minister was to provide answers for people who are oppressed, people who are poor, people who are feeling um, the weight of social injustice. And he saw that as the basic message of Christianity. In one of the letters to Coretta, when he was courting her in Boston in 1952, he says that, I look forward to the day when there will be a warless world, a better distribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcends race or color. So the civil rights part of his agenda, which he doesn't even mention in this letter, was more accidental. He happened to be in the same place as Rosa Parks in 1955 and got caught up in a movement that he didn't start and it was already successful before he became the leader of it. And that's what brought him to prominence. And for the next 10 years, he, he really, uh, I think, most of us would agree he was pretty successful as a civil rights leader. He uh, was one of the key figures in a movement that resulted in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But once that civil rights agenda was accomplished, he didn't retire. He didn't feel like he had achieved his goal. Instead, I think the last three years of his life were He was at least as active as he was before that. I never intend to adjust myself to the evils of segregation and discrimination. I never intend to become adjusted to religious bigotry. I never intend to become adjusted to the madness of militarism, the self-defeating effects of physical violence. And I submit that is need for a little more maladjustment. For you see, it may well be that the salvation of our world lies in the hands of the maladjusted. He was trying to go back to that original agenda, a warless world, a better distribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcends race or color. You know, I, he's trying to end the war in Vietnam. He's launching the Poor People's Campaign. And his vision has become more global you know, about how do you build, as he put it, community rather than chaos. You know, something that really strikes me as you say that, Clay, is that a lot of that, at least in today's world, still sounds 
kind of radical. And yet he is often, when he's remembered, is sort of thought of as the tame civil rights leader when you compare him to Malcolm X and this idea of, you know, by any means necessary, or the Black Power Movement, or the Black Panthers. How, how do you view him in terms of how one thinks about the word radicalism and whether he was radical? I think he would describe himself as, as radical and uh, that that's what he felt was necessary at that time. So I think in terms of his goals, he was not that different from Malcolm X in terms of seeing things in global perspective, you know, that global human rights rather than simply citizenship rights. He's not that different from the Black Panther Party, who were also concerned about issues of poverty and social justice and had kind of a global perspective. So the difference was that he felt that it could be done nonviolently. And I think that that was where he departed from a Stokely Carmichael or a Huey Newton or Malcolm X. I think they were skeptical about the notion that it could be done nonviolently, but he believed that that uh, nonviolence was potentially a a powerful force. That's what he got from Gandhi's example: is that uh, when it was mobilized, then uh, nonviolence didn't have to give way to the power of violence. It didn't have to say that there were certain kinds of injustice that were beyond the power of people to change. And uh, so I think he was always inspired by that notion that if you could just mobilize people to, you know, if you could just mobilize Christians, for example, to understand that an essential part of the Christian message is doing justice to those less fortunate, to be concerned about the least of these in, in, in a community, to be concerned about the sanitation workers in Memphis or the sharecroppers in Mississippi, and and that a society is judged on how those people at the bottom of the social order are treated. That's the point of the Good Samaritan story for him, which he often quoted. One day a man came to Jesus. You know, that, that notion of who is going to stop and help the person in need uh, on the side of the road. You remember that a Levite? And the priest passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. And finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man. You, know, you can't just pass that by. And that's what he was saying about the sanitation workers when he was called to come and help them. He he felt that he had an obligation. Uh, so to me, I, I see his life as being very consistent. Right. And that some of these dichotomies that have been placed around ideas of who was radical and who wasn't, in a sense, are contemporary, con- contemporary framing. You have to remember that any movement against injustice is seen as radical. You know, when you think about it, if someone had said in the middle of the uh, 18th century that my goal is to eliminate slavery in any place in the world, 
so that no person will be a slave. That would have been seen as a radical goal because slavery had existed since the beginning of civilization. It was one of the definitions of civilization. You know, practically every society that had slaves. So the idea that you could eliminate the institution of slavery. It was radical, but yet it was accomplished in, in a little over 100 years. We define things as radical because that's where we are in our historical pers- perspective. I wonder if you can bring Coretta Scott King into the picture. I think sometimes she's sort of occasionally, if people haven't been looking carefully, seen as a, a shadow character, uh, the woman behind the man. But is that an incorrect understanding of her? I think that's definitely the case. I think that there was always that sense of she was the the wife and then the widow. And that's the way most people saw her. And I had a chance to know her for 20 years, and I, I saw a different person. And I, the more I learned about her, the more I realized that she was an activist before she met Martin Luther King. She was um, actually much more politically active than he was at that time. She had been involved in the Progressive Party movement of the 1940s. She had been involved with the NAACP and protest activity. Uh, she was involved in the peace movement during the 1950s and 60s. Uh, she was more outspoken on the war in Vietnam than he was and took a stand earlier than he did. When she met Martin in 1952, I remember her telling me that when I, she said, when I met Martin, he had a lot of ideas in his head, but he had never done anything. And she was two years older than Martin. And Martin had gone to college, but he had gone to Morehouse while living at home under, you know, the in the shadow of his father who wanted to protect him from you know, kind of controversial political activity. He had then gone to Crozier Theological Seminary in a small town in, in Pennsylvania with few opportunities for political activism of any kind. So it's only after Martin gets to, to Boston and meets Coretta that she opens his eyes to people like Paul Robeson, who Coretta knew, Martin didn't. He was you know, an icon of the progressive movement. And the fact that she emerges as a, an activist in her own right, it's gradual because she does reluctantly take on the role of staying at home, raising the kids, and allowing Martin to be the person out front. But by 1962, she's suggesting, I need to join you in jail. And by the time of the Selma to Montgomery march, she's marching by his side. She's the one who meets with, with Malcolm X in uh, early 1965 when she goes to Selma. And by the end of Martin's life, she is, in her own right, an activist. She's the one who, a week after Martin's assassination, she and her children go to Memphis even as she's mourning the death of her husband. My husband often told the children that if a man had nothing that was worth dying for, then he was not fit to live. He said also that it's not how long you live, but how well you live. 
He knew that at any moment his physical life could be cut short. He gave his life for the poor of the world, the garbage workers of Memphis and the peasants of Vietnam. He gave his life in search of a more excellent way, a more effective way, a creative rather than a destructive way. We intend to go on in search of that way. And I hope that you who loved and admired him would join us in fulfilling his dream. She's the one who takes part in the sanitation workers' march that Martin wanted to take part in. And of course, you know, after Martin's uh, death, she's the one who takes the lead in sustaining his legacy. And of course, I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing today if not for her. Professor Carson, I want to take us back to 1963, because for many people, Dr. King has sort of become frozen, if you will, in time on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial delivering his I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And the fact that the speech is the most known and you know, people often encounter 30 or 45 seconds of it, may have them believe that the dream was somehow fulfilled. What gets missed in the memory of that speech? Well, first of all, I think they should, anyone should know who studied the speech is that he didn't plan to give the dream part of it. Uh, the, The speech that he prepared was a speech that was in an African-American tradition of pointing out the hypocrisy of the, of the country, of saying that here's a country that justified its own revolution by saying that it committed to the ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone, not just for American citizens, that that was a human right. Generations of black leaders have pointed out that, yes, here's a country that says we are for equal rights, but routinely denies those rights. So I think that that's what the speech was about, is he starts out by talking about the architects of the republic. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, I I was involved in designing the King Memorial, and one of the the things we knew about that site is that we could have King looking across the um, Tidal Basin at the Jefferson Memorial. And so 
my conception of, of the memorial was King carrying on this symbolic dialogue with Jefferson uh, so that when he says, uh, when the architects of this republic wrote the words of the Declaration of Independence, he would be addressing, at least symbolically, Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the architects of the Declaration of Independence. And, and, a, and a slaveholder. And a slaveholder, and making it clear that this is the great American dialogue between the ideal of freedom and democracy and equality um, that was part of the founding of the nation, but also the reality of oppression, systematic oppression, of uh, denial of rights, of a society where um, injustice was in some ways endemic. So you see that's the basic tension in American history, this tension between the ideals and the reality and the visionaries who want to change the reality into the ideal. This year for the Super Bowl, Chrysler licensed Dr. King's drum major instinct sermon for a pickup truck ad. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. What did you make of that? Well, I, I think in some ways that's what the nation uses King for. On the one hand, you can see that people who encountered the actual king found him a very troublesome presence. And uh, his popularity by the end of his life, had, even among black Americans, had gone down. I think that it's difficult for Americans to accept the controversial king, but the moment he died, it was easy to create another king. And it started right at the funeral. You know, that many of the prominent political leaders who showed up at Martin Luther King's funeral a week earlier would not want have wanted to be photographed with him. And the people who were actually working with King couldn't get into the funeral. So almost immediately, it, Martin Luther King became kind of a symbol for uh, not the unfinished business of the movement, but for the success of the movement. Uh, so America could look at King as this symbol for, well, we once had this race problem, but Martin Luther King helped solve it. Uh, it, it's, it was a convenient way of emphasizing the dream and forgetting about, you know, what, are, what were all those speeches he was giving during the last three years of his life? Uh, we'll just uh, um, consign those to the historians. Well, and in talking about selective memory, the drum major instinct speech itself is a critique of advertising. Yes, right. We are so often taken by advertisers. You know, uh, those gentlemen of massive verbal persuasion. And they have a way of saying things to you that kind of gets you in the bind. In order to be a man of distinction, you must drink this whiskey. In order to make your neighbors envious, you must drive this type of car. In order to be lovely to love, you must wear this kind of uh, lipstick or this kind of perfume. And you know, before you know it, you're just buying that stuff. He spoke to the influence of advertisers whom he referred to as those gentlemen of massive verbal persuasion. So 
you know, yeah, selective editing has been going on for quite a while. And I think also it, it's important to keep in mind that King was a critic of capitalism. And that does not mean to say that he was a communist. In fact, he was a critic of communism also. But for most Americans, they don't see that there's a third alternative, that you can reform capitalism. And that's what he wanted to do, was to make it more humane. You know, so a lot of the things that he was advocating at the end of his life did not require the end of capitalism. It just meant that he was demanding that the system recognize the problems that were created. As I said before, it's been 10 years since we uh, worked with you so closely on the um, 2008 documentary about King's last year of life. And so much has happened since then. We had the first black president, you might have noticed. <laughs> and mm -hmm. now we have a president who, um, in some ways, as I think we've seen, is not willing, at least, to disavow white supremacists. We've had some unraveling of voting rights legislation, and we certainly are still struggling with incredible inequality. How do you make sense of King's legacy just in these last 10 years? I think that after every great social movement, you have a retrenchment. Uh, social movements are disruptive. You know, after the Civil War and the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, we had a period in which the nation backtracked. Uh, we call it uh, the end of Reconstruction when uh, all these Jim Crow laws were passed. And, and rather than black people getting the right to vote, the entire social structure, political structure in the South was based on the notion of denying votes to black people. So, uh, so it's not that uncommon that after the 20 years uh, after World War II, when historically important movements were going on around the world to, to gain citizenship rights. You know, not only the end of the Jim Crow system in the United States, but the end of colonialism um, in many places in the world, the end of the apartheid system. And those were disruptive. And people who are part of the existing social order that's getting disrupted tend to react by retrenchment. They want to go back to the old days, before that, before there were demonstrations, before there were sit-ins, and uh, before there were people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and, you know, other people who disrupted their peace. You know, when President Trump talks about make America great again, to me, <laughs> America became greater when these changes came about. But for many Americans, they want to go back to the 1950s where America was great. And they forget that for many people, it meant we were living under segregation. They were, that wasn't so great for all Americans. And uh, I see that as a part of a historical pattern. And uh, now we're in a period where I think we're, we're entering a period of increasing disruption as people realize that a lot of changes need to happen, especially when young people realize that the society could be more just. Where did you first, how did you first become exposed to Martin Luther King Jr., if you will? Where does that story start for you? I guess I grew up uh, hearing about Martin Luther King. The freedom struggles of the 50s and 60s were 
the way I learned about the black community. I grew up in a small town in New Mexico where there were only three black families. So whenever I read the newspaper and I saw some reference to black Americans, it would often be in connection with, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott, the Little Rock Nine. They were heroes of mine growing up, the the students who started the sit-ins. And of course, you know, hearing about Martin Luther King. Uh, He was the most prominent figure to emerge during my teenage years. So I'd heard about him a lot, and then when I went to the March on Washington, he was the one who I knew was going to be the concluding speaker and the the highlight of the event. That was when I was 19, and I, I first saw him at the March on Washington. What impact did that have on you at the time? Well, you know, I get asked that a lot, and it, and it wasn't so much King's particular impact because, you know, he was an orator. I, I couldn't be like him. I definitely would not have gotten up in front of several hundred thousand people and gave a speech. But the younger people, you know, right before the march, I met Stokely Carmichael. A few months after the march, I met Bob Moses. You know, I, I started meeting people who were closer to my age and were active in the freedom struggle, and they were doing things I could imagine myself being involved in. And uh, eventually I, I was. You know, they were, they were involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And when I went to Los Angeles, I became involved with a group called the Nonviolent Action Committee, which was very much influenced by SNCC. Those were people who I, I saw more as role models. And I think that in some ways, King was trying to catch up with the movement. He was uh, kind of like Gandhi. You know, I, I need to catch up with my followers in order to, because I am their leader. That was certainly true with the young people I knew. They weren't waiting for Martin Luther King. They thought of themselves, we thought of ourselves as the vanguard of the struggle and saw Martin Luther King trying to catch up with us. But I think all of us admired his ability to articulate a vision for our movement. I think one of the differences between activists and visionary leaders is that activism is often about just the immediate goal, a better seat on the bus, being able to sit at the lunch counter. It takes a visionary to say it's about more than that. When I was at the March on Washington when I was 19, You know, many of us thought that the purpose of the march was to try to get John F. Kennedy's civil rights legislation through. Martin Luther King didn't mention the civil rights bill. And that was typical of him. He wanted everyone to be aware that it was about more than that. We know that now. We know that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was not the end of the struggle. Um... You, you realize that once you get, get to sit at the front of the bus, that isn't enough. It never is enough. It's always simply one step in a long process of becoming an equal human being. And, uh, you know, that's a continuing process, you know, that it never ends. You know, I think one thing about human rights is they can never be written down on, on paper. They're, they're always being invented. There's always going to be something in the future. And I think that'll always be the case. Next time on King's Last March. There was this great graffiti. It said, be realistic. Demand the impossible. 
And I think that what King was reminding us of is that is the meaning of nonviolent revolution, that you are daring to attempt the impossible. Our interview with the late historian and activist Vincent Harding, Martin Luther King Jr.'s longtime friend and advisor. King's Last March is a production of American Public Media and APM Reports. Support for King's Last March comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved. To hear more speeches and to see photos from King's final year, please visit our website, apmpodcasts.org slash MLK.